Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Bill Reel and I are going to talk about the monumental and historical changes that have recently been made to the LDS Temple Endowment. We are recording this on January 9th, 2019, effective the beginning of this year, so just a week ago. Massive changes were made into the LDS Temple Endowment, and word of that leaked out uh, pretty much immediately, Bill, and not only word of it, but also a lot of details regarding the changes that have been made. Now, for anybody out there who doesn't know, the LDS Temple Endowment is shrouded in secrecy, and therefore, it's not something that the leaders came out and said, hey, we're making these changes and these are the changes. No. People, as a general rule, either are not admitted into the LDS Temple, or if they are admitted into the LDS Temple, it is only members of the LDS Church in good standing, and they generally, well, first off, they do take upon themselves oaths and covenants to not talk about certain aspects of the Temple Endowment, and frequently, many members of the Church extend those obligations to anything and everything that happens inside the walls of the Temple. I'm going on too long now without saying good morning to you. Bill Real. how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing exceptional, RFM. And uh, you and I have talked, as you pointed out in a, in a previous episode, you and I talk uh, a couple times a week, uh, sometimes more than that. And this was one of these discussions that as we began to talk about all the ramifications of these changes, these are in some ways far-reaching. And in some ways, there's some unique things happening that have never happened before. Uh, and, and I'm just interested to kind of dive into this with you. Well, I am too. I will tell you that the Temple Endowment is itself an ordinance in the LDS Church. It is about an hour and a half long. It used to be longer. Now it's shorter. Uh, with the changes that have been made, it's made it shorter, as well as changing some components of the LDS Temple. But the last time this happened, Bill, was in 1990. Apparently, it was in the month of April. 1990. And at some point, maybe earlier rather than later, I want to talk about the changes that were made in the LDS Temple Endowment then so that we can have a background to talking about the changes that are being made in the LDS Temple Endowment right now. I think what we are living through is a very exciting time to be a member of the LDS Church or to be an observer of the LDS Church because things are happening right before our eyes and the things that we are seeing is the LDS Church changing some of its fundamental core principles and even ordinances to conform with societal pressures and advancements and particularly in the new changes with advances in the roles of women and their equality with men. Yeah, and I would even go a step further. If you put this change in the context of all the other changes that have happened over, say, the last uh, two years, uh, and, and let's essentially say since President Nelson uh, became president of the church, what I think you're seeing happening is that Mormonism, which even that word plays into this, Mormonism is changing its brand. Uh, it is becoming something entirely different than what it was, say, a decade ago. Yes, and it is interesting when I compare the rhetoric of the church leaders 
in General Conference and in other places with what is actually transpiring in the temple very much behind the scenes. But the rhetoric seems to be one of retrenchment and one of we are going to die on every hill. This is the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. God has restored his ordinances to the earth. We are not going to change. We're not going to budge. We're going to stand for the truth as God has revealed it traditionally and historically in the LDS church. But behind the scenes in the temple endowment, changes are taking place. Yeah, these changes are significant. So uh, there's a lot of ground to cover. uh, And and I think the first thing I would want to say as we kind of start to dive into this is that there are lots of things I'm critical of in this conversation. But I want to just lay it out as my first premise, which is that I think the changes that were made are healthy changes. I think in one fell swoop, and we'll get into this, in one fell swoop, the church removed patriarchy completely from its temple. Uh, and and maybe I would be happy, and, I, and I'm open to this because I, I feel like I'm uh, a feminist and I feel like I'm an ally to... Uh, that cause. I would welcome women in the church uh, messaging the two of us and saying like, hey, keep in mind, we still do this or keep in mind, this still happens. And I'm okay with that. Like, I'm not saying like, it's all completely, absolutely gone. I'm sure there's still some vestiges there. But in one fell swoop, they removed all of the apparent patriarchy in the temple. Uh, and I think that that should be recognized as a healthy change. That's a positive. It's a, it's a super positive thing that they've done. The trouble is the way that they framed it and the way they are setting it up and imposing on the membership that we ignore what it used to be and how it got to where it is right now. That discussion, I think, is the one we're going to have today. Uh, but I just want to start off saying, like, let's give, uh, let's give a round of applause to the church for the changes themselves. They are absolutely on the positive side. I agree with you 100%. Uh, just to push back a little bit against what you said and maybe to anticipate what kind of emails you may get, it is certainly true that the temple presidents are still going to be men that the people who administer or serve as the officiator in the endowment ceremonies are still, I expect, going to be men. So there's certainly uh, the patriarchy that has been longstanding in the LDS church that will be in full play in the administration of the temples and the administration of the temple endowment. But yes, we do need to give credit to the LDS church under President Nelson, no less. We need to give credit to the LDS church for making changes that are putting women on a more equal playing field than they have been historically, and also making changes that specifically appear to address complaints that women have been making more and more over the last, well, really over decades. It's kind of long time in coming, but for the LDS church, better late than never. I think that When we look at the changes, we'll see really these changes are tailored to address concerns that members and especially the sisters have had with regard to the temple endowment experience. Yeah. And as you point out, and I probably should be a little more aware or at least a 
uh, cognizant of what it does still go on. Obviously, women still are the ones who hand out the towels, for instance, uh, for the baptisms for the dead. Uh, I think, I think in my mind, RFM, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it feels like maybe what we should do first is talk for a moment about this idea of the temple endowment or the temple ordinances being unchangeable. Uh, and it feels that when I joined the church as a 17-year-old, that I was very much sold on this idea that part of the apostasy was was that the that Catholicism and other Christian denominations were so wishy-washy on how they did their ordinances, and they often would change them to suit some circumstance uh, in in that religious culture. So, for instance, Catholicism going to the sprinkling of children. And I remember missionaries and members pointing me to that and saying, see, look, that's the apostasy. And then the essentially the other side of the coin would then be uh, relayed back to me, which is that, you know, ordinances are eternal Ordinances are meant to be forever. Ordinances are unchangeable. God's the one who delivered them. And that all of that was a sign that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was the true and living church upon the earth. I'm just curious. This is something I don't think that you and I have ever talked about. Is that the same message that you got as you came into the church as well? Oh, absolutely. I was baptized in 1978. And back then, Bill, the church talked a lot about the apostasy. Now, this is something that may be news to people who have not been members of the church for a long time because the church does not seem to emphasize the apostasy very much anymore. But when they, I... They don't the, seem that big on Lamanites anymore either, do they? No, no, there are certain things. <laughs> and and to, to, to quote uh, President Gordon B. Hinckley, I don't know that we teach that. I don't know that we emphasize that. There are a whole host of things that the church ceases to emphasize when it kind of wants to move away from a prior teaching. They don't simply come out and say, well, we're going to de-emphasize that or we're going to change the way we look at that. They just start not emphasizing it. They start not talking about it and kind of hope that people won't notice. But definitely when I joined the church, um, the apostasy was talked about a great deal. There was a book, The Great Apostasy by James Talmadge, which was still in print and which I read not long after I joined the church. And it talked all about the apostasy. And one of the things about the apostasy was, and of course, when we're talking about the apostasy from the LDS point of view, we're talking about the loss of the true church that Jesus Christ established back 2,000 years ago when he was on the earth. And then he gives his priesthood to his apostles. He establishes his church. It gets lost over time. The apostles get killed off as they fan out throughout the known world in order to preach the gospel. There end up not being any apostles left to ordain other apostles, which I guess wasn't really well thought out on their part. But anyway, eventually the church gets lost, the priesthood authority gets lost, and the ordinances get changed. And it was very common at the time to hear Isaiah chapter 24, verse 5, quoted in this regard, which says, the earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have done three things, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. And I was taught very, very clearly that changing the ordinances equated with breaking the everlasting covenant. 
and transgressing the laws. The way that Jesus originally established his church was the way the LDS church is established today. They had baptism. It was done by immersion. It was done probably with the same language. I don't know that that part exactly was said. It was done with people who are of the age of accountability. That baptism of infants was absolutely a sign of the apostasy and not something that Jesus ever would have done in his entire life or even considered doing from the LDS point of view. And the ordinances themselves in the LDS church in 1979 are very strictly defined and very strictly performed. If you're talking about the ordinance of baptism, there is a very specific prayer that has to be said word for word. The only change in it, of course, is when you're calling a person by name, then you the name would change as to who's being baptized. But that's it. Everything else has to be said word for word. And if memory serves, call the person by name and say, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and thus and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. See, I had to remember that because you have to get the of the in front of each one of them. It has to be said exactly correctly in order for it to take, in order for it to be done correctly. And then the person has to be baptized completely by immersion. If they're wearing clothes, this usually happens if it's a woman or a girl being baptized because they may have on a dress that can float up and break the surface of the water, which doesn't count. Their body may be fully immersed, but even their clothing has to be fully immersed. And if they have hair, better have it in a bun because if the hair comes to the surface of the water, then that doesn't count either. And in order to make sure, Bill, in order to make sure that it's done correctly, there are two witnesses who are placed there. And these, by the way, cannot be women. They have to be priesthood holders. And I believe they have to be Melchizedek priesthood holders, though somebody could correct me on that. But they have to be there in order to observe the baptism performed, to make sure it's done word for word correctly, and to make sure that the baptism is done completely by immersion, no clothes coming up to the surface, no hair coming up to the surface. And if they both say it's good, then it's good. We have a similar thing with relation to the sacrament. That has to be done word for word every week by holders of the priesthood. In this case, of course, it can be the Aaronic priesthood, but it is the bishop in each ward or his representative if he's not there, but it's the bishop in each ward who has to be the witness, who has to make sure that that prayer is said word for word correctly on both the bread and on the water. And if either one is said incorrectly, even one word off, then the bishop will stop He'll tell the priesthood holder who did the blessing on the bread or the water or the prayer on the bread and the water, actually, to repeat it, to make sure it's done word for word. And sometimes this, is, sometimes this can get embarrassing because a lot of times you're dealing with teenage boys and they might start getting nervous and then things go from bad to worse and they start making more and more corrections. I remember once a long time ago when I was at a sacrament meeting, there was a young man who was made a mistake and he had to do it again. And so now he's really under the gun and he makes another mistake and then he has to do it again. And by the time he gets to the first word of the prayer, which he's repeating for about the fourth time now, where it says, Oh God, the eternal father, he says, Oh God. And it was more like <laughs> an exclamation on his point rather than the prayer. I remember that, but that's just all part of saying that ordinances in the LDS church, very strict, very word for word. And my understanding when I was growing up in the church, is that the exact same thing applied to the temple endowment. All of that, I think, is important because it needs to be understood 
that the uh, milieu in Mormonism from as far back as you can remember, and, and everything you said was exactly how it was when I came into the church in 1996. Uh, and and those same kinds of things happened. I understand those ordinances the same way. And even today, certainly baptism, sacrament, for instance, hold that way. So then the next thing that happens is you dive back into what leaders talk about and the way that they frame this. And so one example, for instance, is the Reed Smoot hearing, which for those who don't know what that is, uh, essentially Joseph uh, F. Smith is uh, called, he's the president of the church, he's called to testify before uh, the the federal government in terms of polygamy and its ending. And several witnesses are there. One of them is Reed Smoot, who is, uh, I don't know if he, if he is a senator at the time, but he certainly was a senator, and I think he was a senator at the time he does this. Yeah, and actually, Bill, I think that these were senatorial hearings held in Washington, D.C., uh, because Utah now is proposing a senator in Reed Smoot, and these are the hearings to see if he will be seated by the Senate. Yeah, and, and the whole idea is that if Utah isn't following federal law uh, in terms of polygamy being illegal and they're practicing it, and Reed Smoot is a faithful practicing Mormon, and all of the church is doing this thing called polygamy while the government is saying like, hey, stop doing that, then we have to kind of see if Reed can hold this uh, this Senate seat. Reed Smoot says, the endowments have never changed and can never change as I understand it. It has been so testified and that Joseph Smith Jr. himself was the founder of the endowments. Now that's Reed Smoot. He's not a general authority, although he is pointing to LDS leaders having uh, stated his much to him, uh, but we shouldn't use him as an example, essentially, because he's not an authority. So let's see who else had things to say. Uh, For instance, the history of the church. This is the prophet Joseph Smith. Now, the purpose in himself in the winding up scene of the last dispensation is that all things pertaining to that dispensation should be conducted precisely in accordance with the preceding dispensations. And then Joseph goes on. He set the temple ordinances to be the same forever and ever and set Adam to watch over them to reveal them from heaven to man or to send angels to reveal them. Here, just after that, it says this. The power, glory, and blessings of the priesthood could not continue with those who received ordination, only their righteousness continued, for Cain also being authorized to offer sacrifice, but not offering it in righteousness was cursed. It signifies then that the ordinances must be kept in the very way God has appointed. Otherwise, their priesthood will prove a cursing instead of a blessing. I know reading these quotes can be a little dry, but this is so crucial to this conversation. Joseph Fielding Smith, 1976, in his book, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, said, Ordinances instituted in the heavens before the foundation of the world in the priesthood for the salvation of men are not to be altered or changed. All must be saved on the same principle. And then uh, just uh, another one here, August 2001, Enzyme uh, Magazine, the church's periodical, page 22, in big, bold print above the large, colorful, colorful portrait of the prophet Joseph Smith, it says, quote, the prophet Joseph Smith taught, Uh, ordinances instituted in the heavens before the foundation of the world in the priesthood for the salvation of men 
are not to be altered or changed. So again, it's not just that Joseph Smith said it, it's that as of 2001, the church was certainly still holding that ground. Uh, and then one last one, this is Apostle James E. Talmadge, the house of the Lord. And, and I want to recognize here as I share this quote, uh, another thing that's important to this conversation is that LDS general authorities have written a ton about the temple. You have James E. Talmadge's book here, The House of the Lord, which I've got on my bookshelf. You have uh, Boyd K. Packer's book, The Holy Temple. Beyond that, you also have tons of just lay members whose books over the last 50 years have sat on Deseret bookshelf, and they also have talked um, very detailed about the temple. As you pointed out, there are certain things we've made promises not to talk about. Those are essentially the signs and tokens that are given in the temple. But we've never been under covenant or commandment to talk about other aspects. And so here, James E. Talmadge, House of the Lord, 1968, page 84, uh, quote, not, No jot, iota, or tittle of the temple rite Temple rites is otherwise than uplifting and sanctifying in every detail the endowment ceremony contributes to covenants of morality of life, consecration of person to high ideals, devotion to truth, patriotism to nation, and allegiance to God. It's this idea that the ordinances are uplifting and sanctifying, and then the other quotes say that these ordinances should not be altered or changed. Uh, and that's absolutely my understanding of Mormonism up until, say, five years ago, even with recognition that, yes, we've changed the temple ordinances, there's also this cultural and, uh, from our leadership, this theological uh, context that we are not allowed to change or alter the ordinances. Right. A few things about that. First off, James Talmadge quote, very important from his book, The House of the Lord. You give us the date, the 1984, which I think is your copy, even though he, of course, lived much earlier than that. And I think he originally wrote that in the first edition, probably around 1912. That's significant to me. And here we're going to get to one of the first changes and a significant change in the LDS Temple Endowment, which happened probably maybe 1927, maybe the 1930s. Anyway, it had to do with the oath of vengeance. This is something that stuck out to me in that quote from James Talmadge, where he talks about there's nothing in the temple endowment that doesn't do anything except promote one of the things he listed was patriotism to nation. Now, that's a really strange thing for him to say, because I've been through the temple endowment many, many, many times. I can't think of one thing in there that has anything to do with patriotism to nation. Can you, Bill? No, I, I can't. No, no I, unfortunately, I can't. Um, I will say I am aware of something we used to do a long time ago that worked in the opposite against patriotism. Yes, and that's why he's saying it. Not because there's something in there that is for patriotism, but because there actually is something in there that is against patriotism and certainly was interpreted that way. And I think it may have come out in the Reed Smoot hearings. At any rate, this was the Oath of Vengeance that was administered in the temple up until probably the 1930s. It was inserted by Brigham Young in 1845 in the Nauvoo Temple. It's obviously not something that Joseph Smith had in there because it relates to him and his death. Now, from the LDS perspective, they were obviously very upset that their prophet and his brother, the patriarch, had been ganked in Carthage, Illinois. 
And so they didn't see that there was ever any, well, the government didn't seem to be very interested in pursuing the people who did this. And there were a great many conspiracies that ran amok among the saints, and they believed that the government was behind this. Now, whether that's true, whether it's not, I can't say at this point, but it's very clear that the leaders and the members of the LDS Church believed that. And so in 1845, a year after Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith were killed, this oath of vengeance was placed in the temple endowment. And this is almost certainly why it is that James Talmadge in 1912 is talking about patriotism to nation being part of the temple endowment, because this is what was administered. You and each of you do covenant and promise that you will pray and never cease to pray to Almighty God to avenge the blood of the prophets upon this nation and that you will teach the same to your children and to your children's children unto the third and fourth generation. So that was the covenant that was taken by people who went to get their endowment at the temple from probably 1845 until the 1930s, so almost 100 years, this was going on. And it was going on at the very time that Talmadge would have written his book, The House of the Lord, in or around 1912. That's why he talks about patriotism to nation being in the endowment, because actually, mm, it's the opposite. But word is getting out. He wants to put in his two cents in favor of the endowment, even though his two cents are actually the opposite of what actually transpired in the endowment. Yeah, and there's even something more than that, which is today, if you're in an endowment session, there is a part of the endowment where some of those in the room will go up to the front of the room and a a little bag uh, will have in it people to be prayed for. So uh, Mormons, Latter-day Saints, all across the world, whenever they have somebody, a loved one who's seriously ill, or they're aware of some uh, need on behalf of some human being, they will submit that name to the temple to be prayed for. What, and, and that is, that's a really great thing too, um, in terms of the care and concern and, and, and looking out for these people, and, and at least on some level having a belief like, hey, prayer works and let's pray for these folks. Those names then are put into these bags all across the temples that the church has. And then groups of people in the temple will then pray for those people uh, whose names are in that bag. But that's not the way that was always done. There was a time in the church, RFM, where uh, the church would take the leaders of our country at the time when this polygamy battle was going on they would put their names into these bags and we would then pray for those people to be cursed uh, instead of blessed. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of that. I'm I'm sure you've heard that at some point, but, and again, I don't have the dates on this, but I'm absolutely 100% sure of this, that there was a time when the church was battling the federal, federal government on polygamy, where we used to do cursings on those, uh, those leaders of our country uh, in the prayer circle in the temples rather than others who were sick and looking for blessings. That's very interesting. That's news to me, Bill. You got one over on me there. I think that's really interesting. And, and one of the things I find interesting is not only the Talmud at the very time that these things are happening in the temple, that he knows they're happening in the temple. He was an apostle. He was elderly in 1912 because 
that's when he's writing his books, uh, The House of the Lord, as well as Jesus the Christ, as well as the Articles of Faith. And he knows all about this stuff happening in the temple. He's very well aware of the contents of the temple. Now, the thing that's interesting to me here now is that after the 1930s, when the oath of vengeance is taken out of the temple, and presumably they're not praying for cursings upon the leaders of the country uh, in the prayer circle at the temple anymore. But sizable changes have been made to the temple endowment, at least in those two regards. And yet we have Joseph Fielding Smith, whom you quoted earlier, and later presidents of the church who know about these changes that happen because they happen in their lifetime. They know about these changes. And yet, even though the changes have gone on in the temple, they are still promoting and publicly teaching the idea that the temple ordinance never changes. Yeah, in fact, there's a couple other quotes I just want to add in, just because I'm looking over some of these now and seeing that I think they're crucial to this conversation. Uh, this is the prophet's message, June 5th, 1965. This would have been in the church news, which uh, today is like the, the Deseret News, the, the midsection that comes with that newspaper that pertains just kind of to the church and things going on. It says, the gospel cannot possibly be changed. The saving principles must ever be the same. They can never change. The gospel must always be the same in all of its parts. No one can change the gospel. If they attempt to do so, they only set up a man-made system which is not the gospel, but is merely a reflection of their own lives. If we substitute any other gospel, there is no salvation in it. The Lord and his gospel remain the same always. Man, you can't be more direct. Um, there's another one here. This is... Deseret News, 1982, and this is uh, W. Grant Bangerter, executive director of the Temple Department and a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy. Deseret News, church section, January 16, 1982. Some members wonder if the ordinances can be changed or adjusted. These ordinances have been provided by revelation and are in the hands of the First Presidency. Thus, the temple is protected from tampering. Now, I grant that that quote leaves a little space for the First Presidency to make changes, but I want to at least acknowledge that our theology is that Heavenly Father himself gave these ordinances to Joseph Smith and early leaders. And essentially, we have quotes in our theology that Adam, uh, the first human to have a spirit placed in him was designated to watch over these ordinances and to ensure that they were never changed or altered and always uh, given out and watched over to make sure that they were done appropriately. Uh, this is really deep, really deep within our theology. And yet, as we're pointing out, changes abound. Uh, no, absolutely. I agree with you. And in fact, it's very common. And I know that I, as a Latter-day Saint, because of these teachings, had the idea because it was taught that the temple endowment existed on the earth in past dispensations. Uh, Mormonism has dispensationalism as part of its teachings, and that is that there have been different dispensations beginning with Adam, then periodically thereafter, where the fullness of the gospel was upon the earth. God had a prophet. He had his temple. He had the temple endowment. And the idea was that the same temple endowment that we have today was practiced in all prior dispensations back to Adam and including Moses when 
God had his true church on the earth. And so there was this idea, and probably still is in the church, that even in the Temple of Solomon, well, we know that the Old Testament talks about them doing all these sacrifices and everything, right? They don't talk about any temple endowment going on in the Temple of Solomon. And yet there's this idea, okay, well, the sacrifices went on over here in the main courts, but there were still a lot of other chambers in the Temple of Solomon where actually they were doing the Mormon Temple Endowment. Yeah, I, I think that's an important part of this conversation as well, is that these these ordinances go beyond just this dispensation. And, and so when I was um, first introduced to the church and joining it and reading about it, I was trying to figure out, I would look at pictures of uh, Moses's tabernacle. I would look at pictures of Solomon's temple, renditions of that. And I would try to figure out like soon as, you know, when I went through the endowment in 1997 uh, as a 19-year-old, I was looking like, okay, maybe this was used for this and maybe they did this there. And it felt, again, like in our culture, we supported people having that conversation and trying to figure that out. Um, but as you're pointing out, it becomes tough to do because those areas are quite known in terms of scholarship of what kinds of uh, ordinances seem to be done there, and they don't seem to be quite in line with uh, the Mormon experience. Right. And just to sort of tie off this uh, discussion, hopefully, because I know we got to get to the changes, the recent changes, by way of the changes in 1990. But yeah, it's very common for uh, the LDS to look at the descriptions of the priestly vestments as described in the book of Exodus. They look at those and then they try and compare those vestments and their clothing for the temple that the priests wore with the clothing that patrons to the LDS temple wear. I'm sure you've had that happen. And even more recently in the 19, um, I think it was the 1990s, John Welch, no less, a very able and faithful and very kind and generous, I have to add. On a personal note, LDS scholar and the dean of the law school, the editor of BYU Studies, he's well-placed. He founded farms back in the late 1970s. He discovered chiasmus in the Book of Mormon when he was on his mission in Germany in 1968. Okay, having said all that, he wrote a book called, I believe it was, The Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at the Temple, or I might have those reversed, in which he compares the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and the Sermon at the Temple in 3 Nephi chapter um, 12 through 14, I believe it is, which basically is the Sermon on the Mount with a couple of variations. And what he does in this very long extended treatise is he tries to take the Sermon on the Mount as it's recapitulated in the Sermon at the Temple in the Book of Mormon and tries to make connections between the Sermon at its various points and its different sayings and the Temple Endowment. So this is not something that's just way in the past, and this is not something that just ignorant people do. This is something that is present, current, and that the best and brightest among the faithful LDS scholars continue to do today is to make this connection between the scriptures, whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament or the Book of Mormon, and say, see, they had the temple endowment back then, and here are the clues if we just look at them closely enough and interpret them correctly. Yeah. And and I have that book as well. I remember it having a very colorful cover to it. Um, and I've, like I said, I've got that on my bookshelf. I, I want to talk for just a second. You mentioned this earlier and you mentioned it just now. The, the changes in 1990, I, all I simply want to say is that in the endowment up until 1990, in, in that ritual, 
there would be both uh, penalties as well as promises. And the penalties we would, uh, as Latter-day Saints, and you, you, I assume, I mean, you went through for this. Um, it was my favorite part. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and so I'll, obviously I'm, I'm speaking after the fact, and maybe I should be quiet and let you do this section. But I, I simply want to say that there's both a promise and uh, a penalty. And the penalty portion was removed in 1990 for whatever reason. Obviously, people had a discomfort with it. Obviously, we're entering a time where the church is beginning to experience more of a public uh, awareness uh, in terms of people knowing who the Mormons are. And the church is experiencing, I think, its most dynamic growth uh, at that time. And so I think this, in my mind, was done... Uh, and of course, I'm just guessing, but was done to essentially not leave some real easy point for people to criticize. And again, I do think members generally were beginning to get really uneasy uh, with that happening. I know lots of people, myself included, uh, even though I came in after that was removed, my temple experience was uncomfortable. And I went through after the penalties were removed, and it still bothered me in lots of ways. Um, but I, again, I don't have a lot to say there other than just to acknowledge that there were some serious changes uh, to penalties being taken out. Right. There are names, signs, and tokens that are given to the people who go to the temple as part of the endowment. And those are the sacred, secret parts of the temple. And those are the specific parts of the endowment, which according to the very terms of the endowment, are the parts that people are not supposed to reveal. And prior to 1990, when I went through back in the Provo Temple after I went to the MTC in November of 1979, I got my first endowment. And I can tell you up until 1990, here's what happened, is that the name, the sign, and the token, and you get basically four sets of each with one variation, which I'm not going to go into here. But the name, the sign, and the token that you get, you are put under oath to not reveal it. And the penalty was a symbolic way, which was carried out by all the people who received it, which is everybody who goes for the endowment, of taking life, such as using your thumb, your extended thumb from your hand and bringing it across your throat to signify slitting your throat. And what you were put under oath was that rather than reveal the name, sign, and penalty that you had just received, excuse me, the name, sign, and token that you had just received, you would suffer your life to be taken. So there were three different ways of describing this. One was across the neck, one was across the breast, one was across the bowels. And those related to each of the different combinations of names, signs, and tokens. But each one had basically a death penalty. Now, it was frequently misinterpreted by critics to say that you would go out and kill anybody who revealed anything about the temple, which is not what it was. That's not at all what the penalty was. But the penalty was rather than reveal the name, sign, and token, the sacred, secret parts of the temple, rather than do that, you would suffer your life to be taken. So those were removed completely from the temple endowment in 1990. They were removed because sufficient numbers of members had complained about their feelings of discomfort regarding these penalties in the temple. So that much is correct. Now, there were two other things, two other main things that were removed 
from the temple. By the way, uh, the temple name, signs, and tokens and the penalties very closely related and derived for all intents and purposes from masonry. These penalties are found in the Masonic rituals as well. They were adapted and adopted from those rituals by Joseph Smith into the temple endowment. In addition to that, there was another very Masonic part which had to do with the five points of fellowship which was removed from the temple endowment at the time. The five points of fellowship have to do with when a person in the endowment has gone through the endowment they're at the end of the endowment they are now conversing with god through the veil and now what we do is we simply uh converse with god through the veil there's a man on the other side obviously a temple worker who is representing god on the other side of the veil and this is to show that one has learned the names the signs and the tokens and i'm being a little bit um vague here just because i don't want to be offensive to anybody and because People do hold those sacred, and I want to respect those feelings. But if you know what I'm talking about, you know, and if you don't, hopefully this is enough detail for you to understand. So there is a veil. There is a long sheet with holes in it. And it used to be that when you gave those name signs and tokens to the person representing God on the other side of the veil in order to verify that you knew them, you'd learned them, and in order to pass through the veil into the celestial kingdom, which represents heaven, you had to do it on the five points of fellowship, which meant that through this veil, the five points of fellowship, which is a Masonic idea, and I hope I'm not offending Masons either, is inside of right foot to inside of right foot. So you would put the inside of your right foot against the inside of the right foot of the person on the other side of the veil. Okay, Inside of right foot to inside of right foot, that's one point. Knee to knee, so you put your right knee against his right knee, that's two. The third one was hand to back. So you put your hand on his back, he would reach through and put his hand on your back. And the other two were breast to breast and mouth to ear. So it's a very, very close embrace, this uh, five points of fellowship. And it's done because what you're communicating is supposed to be confidential and it's not supposed to be heard beyond the two people who are doing it. This I never had any problem with, but I can understand why women might not feel the same way in having this very close embrace with the male temple worker on the other side of the veil, who they don't know, they've never seen, and frankly, they can't see while they're doing it, that could be kind of creepy, I get that. So that had also been a complaint. So that was then changed to where it's not on the five points of fellowship, that Masonic aspect of it was taken away in 1990. And now it's not, It's not. there's still an embrace going on, and I shouldn't call it an embrace, there's still a touching of the body, but there's more room, it's not as close an embrace through the veil. In terms of um, a Mormon dance, you could say that now you leave room for the spirit in between. So I think that was done, well, I'm virtually confident that that was done also in response to similar complaints, probably by female members that reached the ears of the leaders, that they were uncomfortable basically hugging a strange man that they couldn't see through a veil at what is supposed to be the most sacred part of the temple. Any comments about that before I go to the third one? Uh, only that, again, as the listener is listening to all of this background, to recognize that Heavenly Father gives these ordinances. That's the, that's the belief we hold as Latter-day Saints. Only to have members express some discomfort, and then God then says, okay, I'll change these eternal things that are unalterable and unchangeable. This very much sounds like the very thing we pointed to other religions for doing. That's the only comment I wanted to make, RFM. Okay, thanks. So 
Uh, the other main change, and this was a huge change in the 1990 endowment, was that they eliminated a complete character from the endowment. Now, people who go to the temple now, they know that there are certain characters. There's a dramatic play that is put on, and the main characters are Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael. There's Adam, there's Eve, there's Peter, James, and John, and there's Lucifer, and that's basically the list of characters. But prior to 1990, there was another character, and he was the Protestant minister, or the sectarian minister. And he had a lot of lines. He had probably the best part in the whole endowment because he presents as a hireling of Lucifer. Lucifer's hired him in order to teach the orthodox religion to Adam and Eve. And through Adam and Eve to everybody in the audience, because everybody in the audience re represents Adam and Eve, as you know. And the idea was that Satan was telling him that he wanted the Protestant minister to convert everybody in the audience to the orthodox religion. And there's some wonderful lines. And so the, the uh, sectarian minister starts talking about God to Adam and describing basically the, um, oh, the, the Trinitarian concept to Adam. And Adam says at the end of it, to me, it is a massive confusion. Adam says, I cannot comprehend it. And the minister says, that is the beauty of it. So that was one of his lines. And ultimately, he's, total, he's a total failure at converting anybody. In fact, it looks like Adam is going to convert the minister to the true LDS religion. And so he goes off and he's kind of dejected. And yet uh, maybe there's hope for him at the end. And maybe he will be taught by Peter, James, and John the true gospel. And maybe he'll come around and become a Mormon. So it's a wonderful part. But that had also raised a great deal of discomfort among many members of the church about the mocking way in which a Protestant minister was portrayed in the temple endowment. What ended up happening in 1990 was that character was just completely eliminated. And just by eliminating him, they must have cut the endowment down by at least 10 minutes. He had that many lines and that big a part in the center of the endowment. So those were three changes that were made in 1990, and they were made specifically to address concerns that were happening among the members of the church and issues that they had in a developing and evolving culture that came more and more to see those three aspects as distasteful and uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and there are, we, we want to certainly establish, like we're talking about these changes in 1990 because those are so close. They're the most recent ones besides what just happened. And, and so it gives some context, but recognizing like there have been changes all the way back, but then recently, just the ones we're, we're essentially getting together and having a conversation about, these are significant. And I want to go through these. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, RFM. If you see one that's really crucial to the conversation, stop me. But let's go through some of these. Um, the endowment. There's, And this I want to put off until we get to the first presidency message. But at the very beginning of the new way of doing the endowment, the first presidency starts off making space for these changes, like announcing like, hey, there's some changes here. And then they explain to the members that uh, we are not to talk about these changes. And in fact, we are not to talk about the ordinances of the temple outside of the temple. So that's first. That's how it starts. There's a new film, and it consists mostly of still frames. So essentially, it's a PowerPoint presentation instead of the old movie clips. 
with voiceover and new music. Uh, Much of the returning and reporting is removed. God now speaks to Adam and Eve equally. Again, I think that's a big plus. Uh, God now speaks to Adam and Eve equally. The once separate promises of obedience, and this is important, uh, men uh, made promises to be obedient to God, and women made promises to be obedient to their husbands as their husbands were obedient to God. That is done away. What now happens is that both male and female on both sides of the room are asked at the same time to make promises, make covenants, to be obedient to God. Robes uh, are no longer applied for the Aaronic priesthood section and are only done once members enter the terrestrial kingdom, which is a portion of the endowment where the members figuratively move from a lower kingdom of glory to a higher kingdom of glory. And in some temples, there's an actual moving from, from one room to another. And the slippers are no longer considered part of the robes and are no longer removed and put back on. Silly point, but there's a part in the endowment where members would take off their slippers and then 10 seconds later, put them right back on. That seemed kind of silly. And so they've just kind of done away with that. Instead of that will do, the wording is now thank you. The law of the gospel, which there are different laws, right? There's the law of Moses. There's the law of the gospel. The law of the gospel is now called the higher law. The law of chastity is expressed with more gender equality. And at the end of the dramatized section, Adam and Eve, this is a new thing. Adam and Eve speak to the audience and Eve has the final say. So the two of them both communicate kind of at the same time to everybody in the room, and Eve has the final word. Uh, another big one, women are no longer veiled in the temple. And, uh, and with all of these changes, the last thing I want to say is that the time of the endowment session seems to be reduced about 20 to 25 minutes to make the sessions shorter. So there's the list of changes. Anything specific you want to say about any of those? Yes, I do want to say something about the covenant of the wife in the law of chastity to be obedient to God instead of obedience to their husband, because I've seen a lot of commentary about this particular change. And the way it used to be prior to this change was that a woman vowed obedience to her husband as he obeys God. In other words, to obey her husband as he obeys God. And now With this change, the woman simply vows to obey God. And a lot of the conversation I've seen has to do with, well, that really isn't changing anything because if you obey your husband as he obeys God, changing that to just obeying God and cutting out the middleman doesn't really change the nature of that covenant. I disagree because I think it's really not fair to only go back to the change before this because in 1990, that language was changed as well as part of those 1990 changes that we talked about before. Prior to that, the exact wording of the pre-1990 endowment was for women that you will each observe and keep the law of your husbands and abide by his counsel in righteousness. So pre-1990, women were under covenant to obey the law, to keep the law of their husbands and men by contrast, vowed to obey the laws of God and keep his commandments. So you've got women vowing to obey the law of their husbands, men vowing to obey the laws of God. So that is really 
what it used to be pre-1990. I have no idea if there were any changes to that before that. But if we look at women vowing to obey the law of their husbands and men vowing to obey the laws of God, and now look at the change and say women now are put under oath to obey the laws of God, that is a huge difference in the covenant. That's a complete difference in the covenant insofar as the women are concerned. Your thoughts, Bill? Whether we like it or not, regardless of the fact that prophets throughout our history have said these ordinances were given straight from God, they are eternal, they are not to be altered and changed, the reality is that we have altered and changed them. And and I think there's no way around that. So you have to come to grips with these two uh, opposing views being juxtaposed against each other, banging heads against each other. The idea that we give rhetoric that ordinances are eternal, unalterable, unchangeable, and on some level these ordinances are not eternal because certain people are under certain covenants and then 10 years later we get uncomfortable with that. We make a change and now another set of people are under a different covenant. Um, And again, the heavens are if we can think about it this way, the heavens are not going to be based in some idea of like, oh yeah, those are the people over there who have to be obedient to their husbands. Oh, and yeah, there's the people over there. That group has to be on that cul-de-sac of the celestial kingdom. They have to be obedient to uh, heavenly father. Like it doesn't work that way. That's nonsensical. And so the idea is we have to come to grips that even though we've said these things are unalterable and unchangeable, they've been altered and changed. And it does diminish the ability to say like, oh, they're eternal. God communicated them very clearly to his prophets. His prophets are very clear on receiving revelation. Like it all gets messy. And when you understand the background of Mormonism, it's just one more thing where prophets say like, no, 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 trust us. We talk to God, we get these things and we're giving them to you just as God gave them to us. And then on some level, like, oh yeah, somehow we didn't clearly convey that and we inserted some of our own ideas in context, and somehow we missed the mark. Yes, and I think it almost goes without saying, but it's probably important to say it anyway, that each and every one of these changes we've talked about from the 1930s to 1990 to the most recent changes all go in one direction, and they all appear to be responses to cultural changes and concerns of members as well as people outside the church who have concerns about what's going on in the temple. So we have changes that go, uh, that we delete the, um, the sectarian Protestant minister, that we get rid of the five points of fellowship, that we get rid of the penalties in the temple in 1990. And now we're getting rid of a great deal of the patriarchy that have caused women in the church concern when they go to the temple. All of the changes go in one direction, and they're always at least 10 or 20 or even 30 years behind the times. This is not God changing things in advance because God is revealing to his prophet how things are going to be in the future. Instead, if it's revelation, this is God revealing to his prophet that he needs to change things in the temple to align and take care of concerns that have been prevalent and voiced among the membership for decades. Yeah, and I want to I want to say what you just said again in my way 
Um, because I think what you hit on just there, you said like, maybe we don't even need to cover this. I think it's crucial. I think this is, to me, the most important part of this conversation. And so I'm glad that you brought that up, which is that we tell ourselves as Mormons, as believing Mormons, we tell ourselves a story. And that story is like, we honor that God has a right to continually communicate with his children. We have an article of faith that says that uh, we believe uh, all that God has revealed and all that he will yet reveal uh, to the kingdom of God. Like we understand that there is more to come. There's more things that God has to say on giving us truth. So in no way are you and I, RFM, playing this game where we're like, oh my goodness, God gave something new and uh, oh, how dare he? No, no, we get it. We understand that Mormonism has this in, their, in its theology. And it's one of the beautiful things that's attractive about Mormonism is that there's a living prophet who God can speak to and can give new insight and new truth to and reveal things. And then we can implement that. So we, we understand that. Here's what's going on. So we tell ourselves that story about God continually communicating with his children. And we recognize that the world is a lost and fallen world. And we have tons of quotes from our leaders who say the world is going off in a bad direction. In fact, take any conference talk from Elder Oaks and you get that message that there's that wicked world, there's that lost and fallen world, and we as the church have to be careful of giving in to what the world is asking us to do because it's lost and fallen. The further away we can get from it, the better off we are, so hold your ground. But that's not what's happening. As you point out, RFM, if you're logical and rational and you look at what's going on in these changes and any other change the church makes, it appears that what the church is doing is saying like, oh, the world is going off in another direction and our members are asking us from the bottom up to also move that direction. And the critical voices from the outside in are asking us to move in that direction. And people are leaving the church because we're not moving fast enough. And so we ought to probably move further in that direction. And so every single change, whether it be to the temple that we're talking about, whether it be uh, allowing women a greater role in the church, whether it be allowing those of color to go to the temple and to receive priesthood, uh, whether it's removing penalties from the temple, whether it's uh, having uh, women no longer promise to uh, be completely obedient to their husbands, no matter what the change is, it's us going in the same direction that the world's going only 40 to 60 years behind it. And what it appears to be from the outside in or from a more progressive perspective, or if you, if I can beg you to be logical and rational is that the church caves in to a world that is moving in healthy ways. The church is resistant to that movement. And only after scratching and clawing and trying to hold its ground does it go being dragged, screaming and yelling? And one of the problems with this bill is that when I joined the church and they were still talking a great deal about the apostasy, the apostasy was defined as what happened to the original Christian church because they allowed this very thing to happen. They allowed the ideas of the world and the philosophies of men to creep in and change the ordinances and change the doctrine and change the teachings. That's why I was taught 
by the LDS Church that the apostasy happened. And what they're doing now is exactly what they described as the apostasy several decades ago. So maybe there's a possible link there, is that the more the church changes, the less it talks about the apostasy, because the more and more it looks like what they're doing is the apostasy itself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so we have said all of this because, and again, it's a ton of context and it feels like a lot to go through. But again, like every issue in Mormonism, it takes essentially an hour and a half to two hours to just set up all the contextual points and all the data markers so that we can now put into context the point we're trying to make. And we want to set up this by reading the first presidency statement. So when these temple changes happened, the Mormon newsroom, which often in Mormonism, LDS leaders rarely ever are vulnerable enough to put themselves in front of somebody asking the question. So in Mormonism, while we have a prophet, seer, and revelator, and actually 15 of them, they rarely ever put themselves in front of news organizations, uh, people with cameras and microphones to take on tough questions. Instead, they often say no comment, or they send out the Mormon newsroom to issue a statement, which is what happened in this case. Or they the, say, or they say, I'm not a dodo. Or, or they say, I'm right. The few times they have put themselves in front of a camera and a microphone. It has not gone well. It has gone well. President <laughs> Hinckley seemed to be the only guy who mastered that. And the rest of us, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland included, seem to trip over their shoes and their feet as they, as they try to uh, talk to the media about what Mormonism is and what it stands for. In this instance, the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has issued the following statement. It's just four paragraphs long if you're reading the same version that I am. Can we just do paragraph by paragraph really quick? Let's do that. Quote, Whenever the Lord has had a people on the earth who will obey his word, they have been commanded to build temples. Scriptures document patterns of temple worship from the times of Adam and Eve, Moses, Solomon, Nephi, and others. Okay, so that's the end of the first paragraph. Uh, I'm not exactly sure about temple worship from the times of Adam and Eve in the scriptures, but regardless, this is exactly what I was talking about before, which appears to still be alive and well in the LDS church, is this idea of dispensationalism, and that fullness of the gospel had in prior dispensations Adam and Eve, Moses, Solomon, Nephi in the Book of Mormon, and that the idea that goes along with it, though not expressly stated here, is that the endowment ceremonies were performed in those temples as well, just as we do them today. Yeah, and I actually see a little hint of something different. And what I'm perceiving when they say, scriptures document patterns of temple worship from the times of the very first till present day, essentially. Um, what I see them saying is, we have culturally told you a message that these things have always been done exactly the same from the beginning till now. And now what they're saying in this little paragraph here, we are relinquishing the way that our culture framed this, and we are now pointing to the scriptures, and the scriptures talk about patterns, patterns of temple worship. And it almost seems like an acknowledgement, RFM, that, hey, you should no longer pay attention to the cultural way we've framed this as having been 
always unchanging from the beginning till now. And you ought to go read the scriptures, which point at Solomon doing his temple experience, Moses doing his temple experience, very different than we're doing ours. And again, they're not saying that directly. But I think for the, the apologist, for the person who's trying to defend the faith, or for prophets to later on go like, hey, look back there. See, we said that. I think they're leaving a little bit of room here for the members to recognize like, oh, there's different ways of doing the temple. And in those different ways, there are patterns but that doesn't mean that it was done exactly the same in Solomon's time as it is done today in the Manti Temple, for example. Interesting point. There may indeed be that uh, making a little elbow room there in that paragraph. Good point. Are you ready to go on to the next paragraph? Next one is, with quote, with the restoration of the gospel in these latter days, temple worship has also been restored to bless the lives of people across the world and on the other side of the veil as well. So that's the second paragraph, which is one sentence. And I think that bodes a little bit more for my side of the argument, talking about with the restoration of the gospel, temple worship has also been restored. So that's that idea of restoration. How do you restore something that wasn't had in the past? And the idea, as I see it, maybe it's confirmation bias, Bill, but I still see them promoting the idea that temple worship being restored must have been the same in the past in order for it to be restored in the present. Yeah, if Moses did 10 things and today we do 10 things and those 10 things today look nothing like those 10 things done before, not only the ritual itself, but the words and the promises or obligations that were made, if they're completely different, which I think all scholarship would point to being the case. If those things are different, then was there a restoration at all of those things? And, I'm, and I would agree with you. This paragraph seems to indicate a restoration, which means that something that was before is now again. And, and that doesn't seem to be the case historically, but that does seem to be the argument that the church is making. Right. Now go to this next paragraph, because I know you're going to have something to say about the last line. Over these many centuries, details associated with temple work have been adjusted periodically. By the way, that's true. We just established that. Yeah. Including language, methods of construction, communication, and record keeping. Well, they didn't really talk about taking out the oath of vengeance or taking out the Masonic elements. But I guess that's included in this generic thing about including language. The language has been changed. I guess you could say that. Methods of construction, communication, record keeping. I don't see anything talking about changing the ordinances in there. But they've changed that as well. Yeah, and it seems like they're trying here to really minimize mm -hmm. all the changes that have happened up till these present ones. And say like, look... Sometimes, periodically, we come in and we, we change a word or two to, to update the language, to make the language be more understood by our, our culture today and by our people. We change the methods of construction. Small Some, temples. You know, right? Mo yeah, small temples. Or Moses used to build his temple out of fabric and sticks. And Solomon built his out of gold and silver. And we today use concrete and mortar. Um, that idea. Communication. 
Um, and I don't know what they're pointing to there, but I, what I'm assuming they're saying is, look, the endowment is uh, about conveying a message and the words we use to convey that message can be completely different. The gestures that we make can be completely different, and we can still be conveying the message that Heavenly Father gave to Joseph Smith to be conveyed in that endowment. And then record keeping, which, man, it feels like just a throw-in to kind of close off uh, this minimizing and make it sound like, oh, yeah, there's all these little things we do. Absolutely. And they're going to try and characterize this as something that is minimal, inconsequential, something that has nothing to do with changing what is actually the most important ordinance or one of the most important ordinances that any faithful Latter-day Saint will ever receive. By the way, that's not the last sentence for those of you not reading along. Here's the last sentence. Please read it, Bill, and then let it fly. Prophets have taught that there will be no end to such adjustments as directed by the Lord to his servants. So when I read this statement, RFM, so it is essentially prophets, plural. I want to make note of this. Prophets, plural, with an S on the end. So more than one have taught. And they're telling it to the membership in a way that conveys like, hey, all of you, remember, we've all been taught by multiple prophets, more than one of them. That there will be no end to such adjustments as directed by the Lord to his servants. Here's the problem. There is no quote in all of Mormonism that uh, makes space for there to be no end of adjustments to the temple. We've already read some of the quotes, and there are lots more, that say that temple ordinances are eternal, given from God, to his prophets, Adam watches over them, they cannot be altered, they cannot be changed. In other words, what is true is the opposite of what they've said. Now, RFM, you're a smart guy, you know Mormonism, I'm a smart guy, I know Mormonism. We put our heads together and said, like, they're telling us there's some quotes out there, at least two, by two different prophets of the Lord that indicate that leaders have taught us, taught us, not just wrote in their private journal, they taught, which means it is available to all the membership to know what these quotes are. You and I banged our heads together to come up with these quotes. RFM, would you read a couple of these quotes they're talking about? I would if I could find them. They don't exist. So I thought, okay, you and I, we know a lot, but we don't know everything. So I go on Facebook yesterday and I say, look, let me put out a challenge. I'll give a reward, $50. I will mail $50 to anybody who can provide me the quotes that LDS leaders here are talking about through this, uh, through this message. And nobody has them. Nobody's claimed the 50 bucks yet. There are no quotes. And I thought, okay, All of the listeners who pay attention to Bill Real on Facebook, they don't have the answer, but the answer has to exist. And RFM, what would be, if you wanted an apologetic view, if you wanted somebody to say, look, slow down, there's a better way to see things, uh, who would you contact? What, What resource would you reach out to in Mormonism to get that kind of an answer? Well, um, how about Fair Mormon? 
Excellent. So Fair Mormon is the apologetic arm of the church. They're not directly connected to the church, but they work closely with the church. We've talked, you and I, RFM, have talked before about how John Lynch has been on the record saying that uh, they work closely with the church, and if the church needs information on a member who's being critical or a member who's raising concerns, that Fair Mormon will work directly with the church. Fair Mormon has a service where they allow people to write them Uh, and ask gospel questions or historical questions or doctrinal questions, and they will give the apologetic response and help that member put this back together. I wrote them two days ago anonymously asking them to respond to this very question of where are these quotes located? Could you please get back to me? And I've got nothing. They went silent. They don't have an answer. These quotes do not exist, RFM. And so this is a flat-out lie in the Mormon Newsroom's publication of a statement issued by the First Presidency. You see, it's one thing to say the PR guys for the church are lying. It's one thing to say the Mormon Newsroom is being dishonest. No, they're releasing a statement from the First Presidency. Elder Oaks, Elder Eyring, Elder Nelson... President Oaks, President Eyring, President Nelson, President Nelson, prophet of the church, these three men have just lied to your face. And for me, like I'm deeply bothered because this is gaslighting at its best. I don't even know what to do with this because essentially what we've done is we've rewritten the record that instead of saying on a dozen or more occasions that temple ordinances are eternal, unalterable. The first presidency of the church with zero evidence has said, no, 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 no. We have always taught you that temple ordinances will be adjusted, that there will be no end of adjustments. We'll make adjustments until the very wrapping up scene where Jesus is here in the millennium. Heck, on his last day of that thousand years, we'll probably still be making adjustments. This seems insane to me and I don't I have no idea how to even how to even come to grips with it because it's such blatant dishonesty. Well, I think recognizing it for what it is is probably the best way to come to grips with it overall. But as I understand it, Bill, you're saying you offered a $50 reward for anybody who'd come up with an example of a prophet having taught that there will be no end to such adjustments in the temple endowment and nobody was able to provide such a quote. Is that correct? That's correct. And let me add, I'm not talking about Heavenly Father coming down and saying like, hey, we need to add in a new ordinance or we need to add in a new sentence. No, no, no. What they mean by adjustments. So they're saying there will be no end. So we need quotes that say adjustments, some kind of change will be happening uh, till the very end of this dispensation uh, until Jesus comes back and, and takes back the rule of his kingdom of God on earth. So there's that, that there will be no end. But that the adjustments, which means both giving and taking, Mormonism is already displayed. It's not only adding in new things, it's removing old covenants. It's taking out pieces and parts that we all used to say were essential and unchangeable and eternal and unalterable. There's no quote on the record and nobody, yes, RFM, nobody has been able to claim these this 50 bucks. And I'll extend it. Any listener, the first person who's listening to this episode who knows of the two quotes or more, 
said by multiple prophets that say there will be no end to these changes and that these adjustments have to involve both adding new things in, which we acknowledge Mormonism has space for, but also to take things out that become offensive to our culture. If anybody can provide those quotes by prophets, and I will let you go all the way back to Adam. You can use Adam's journal all the way forward to today with President Nelson um, prior to this statement telling us this, and the 50 bucks is yours. Well, if nobody can get you $50 in response to your offer, Bill, apparently, contrary to the Temple Endowment teaching, you cannot get anything you want in this world for money. (laughs) I've been waiting, waiting for the spot to use that. Bill, here's the other thing. This is very obvious, but it does bear remarking upon. Here comes Joseph Smith, who claims to be a prophet. He increases scripture. He adds the Book of Mormon. He adds revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. He adds the Joseph Smith translation. He adds the Book of Abraham. He adds the Temple Endowment. He increases, increases, increases. He is revelatory. He is adding upon, to use a phrase from the Book of Abraham. And what we see now, though, is the LDS Church, which he ostensibly founded, The leaders of the church now are doing the opposite. They're not even maintaining what Joseph Smith bequeathed to them. They're not continuing to increase. I think a long time ago, we gave up any hope of any prophet ever actually receiving a revelation to add to the canon and increasing this revelation and increasing the scripture. They're not even doing that. They're not maintaining what Joseph Smith gave us. Instead, they are cutting and cutting and cutting. And the very fact that the temple endowment is being decreased in its length. On the one hand, we're happy about that because we're bored to death to go to the temple and we only do it because we have to and we feel obligated to. At least the vast majority of temple-going Mormons feel that way. That's the good side. But the bad side is, I think, much more telling. And the bad side is, is that the current leadership of the church not only are not maintaining what Joseph Smith gave us, they are cutting, cutting cutting. So we have a contracting church. It is not expanding. And as it contracts, I think it's sort of keeping pace with the membership as well, which when we're talking about the active temple going membership is also contracting and contracting. This is not a healthy sign in my mind. Yeah. Especially when you set yourself up as a church that's on the right side of things only to admit with every change that the world is actually ahead of you and that it's you that's been inconsiderate, that's been unhealthy, that's caused harm and trauma to people through whether it's these ordinances or withholding priesthood from black people, whether it's been uh, having women have this uh, being objects or having this devalued role within the church, uh, whether it's being offensive to LGBT people, by saying things like masturbation leads to being a homosexual, that homosexuality is caused by not having a father in the home or having a mother who's too domineering. When you look at Mormonism, you step back and you say like, look, I don't need it to be true. I want to step back and I want to look at it objectively. And I just want the truth, whatever the truth is, what it looks like is that these guys have no communication with God, that they're stubborn because they, they like the authority they have. They want to maintain that. They don't want to be seen as not being what they claim to be. And then every time 
The world moves. They lose members. It takes them 40 years to think about it, to wrestle with it. And then they finally agree like, oh, yeah, the world was right. We should have come around. So let's come around now. But only 40 to 60 years too late. Right. And putting aside the question of whether the leaders of the church actually are prophets who receive revelation from God for the moment. What revelation from God does it require in order for the leaders of the church to make changes to the endowment, which are what the members have been clamoring for for decades? And to put it in other words, Bill, the LDS church teaches that it's led by revelation. Looking at it from the other side of the coin, if it were not led by revelation, how would it look any different than it does? Right. And it brings up two things for me, RFM, which is one, when we make these kinds of changes to the temple, I got to believe the revelation needed is got to be more than just a fuzzy feeling. Like you can't just say like, hey, our sisters are calling for us to remove this very thing that God thought was essential. And I feel good about that. I'm going to just take that out. It feels like this is serious enough that Jesus himself would need to show up and say like, look, take these three words out, put those four in, do away with this, make sure this doesn't get lost. It seems like it's that specific on one hand. On the other hand, the other side of the coin is that these guys need the members to see things happening that way. So all you have is people being hurt and marginalized at the lowest levels of the church, those on the margins, those as the lay membership of the church. And they're pleading for the church to address these things. And the leaders, all 15 in the temple on Thursday, say like, oh, yeah, we actually are causing hurt. We actually are marginalizing our members. And so we're going to take those things out Everybody feel good about that? Yep, great. Let's do it. But then to portray it as if Jesus still shows up in the room when it seems so obvious that that's not what's happening here. Right. I agree. And that's part of the problem that I and I think that you have with these changes. The changes themselves are in a positive direction. It's the manner in which the church is dealing with these changes and representing these changes, which they're not really representing at all. Instead, they're rewriting history to say that, you know, God has always said there'd be no end to such adjustments in order to cover the fact that they're responding to legitimate concerns of members of the church. There's nothing wrong. I'm speaking directly to President Nelson now. There's nothing wrong with responding to concerns of members of the church. That's actually a good thing. What is problematic is responding to members of the church and their concerns, but not saying that you're responding to their concerns. Instead saying, this is something that Jesus would have done anyway. It has no connection at all to your concerns. This is revelation from on high, given in a vacuum, and we're going to change the temple endowment accordingly. Now, Bill, do you want to get to the last sentence of this statement from the LDS Church? Maybe we can close with this statement because it appears that this statement is meant to make sure that people in the LDS Church who do go to the temple don't go out and talk about it with other people, including other members of the church, even other members of the church who go to the temple themselves. Yeah, so the final the final phrase here in this first presidency statement A dedicated temple is the most holy of any place of worship on the earth. 
its ordinances are sacred and are not discussed outside the holy temple. So when you take that, so this is this is the first presidency statement to the members who have not yet, or or critics, those outside the church, or those who are inside the church but simply haven't gone to the endowment yet. It, this is a message to everybody who has not seen the new way of doing things. You and us, we're not going to talk about this this thing, this thing that's changed. We're not going to talk about these changes and we're going to frame it in the way that says, like, we don't discuss the ordinances outside the temple. When you combine that with the video footage of the first presidency at the beginning of the endowment now, that also says like, hey, we're not going to talk about these changes and uh, we're not even going to talk about the ordinances outside the temple. That's what we as Mormons do. This is brand new. This has never been done. You pointed this out at the very beginning of our recording this. You said, look, the things that Mormons have covenanted not to talk about are the signs, uh, the names, and uh, sorry, the names of the signs, the signs themselves, and the tokens that represent them. We, as Mormons, and I'm, I'm including myself in this because I went through the temple, I made these obligations. Promise not to discuss those three things. Otherwise, we were free to talk about it. Now, as you pointed out, members of the church have missed the mark, and they have, in an effort to provide costly signaling, and and I will explain this. There's a term called costly signaling. It's the way that people in a system convey to each other that they fit in the inside of the tribe. Members, in order to do this costly signaling, overreach and say like, whoa, 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 we're not allowed to talk about the temple because I'm a really good Mormon and I'm going to make sure I don't even get anywhere close to the line. Like we draw lines in religion and then there are those who feel they are watchmen on the tower, another Mormon term, watchmen on the tower. And we step back and we go like, no, 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 let's stay way clear of that line. Let's create a new line that keeps us extra safe. Let's not talk about the temple at all in terms of what goes on in there. But never have LDS leaders, have prophets given that edict. In this message, it's the first time ever that LDS leaders have said, we do not talk about the temple outside of the temple, the ordinances of the temple. That's not true. Go read the Elder Talmadge book. Go read Boy K. Packer's book, The Holy Temple. Go to Deseret Book and take books off the shelf that have to do with the temple and see if the church seemed okay prior to the statement of letting people talk about the ordinances. The church itself has pictures of the rooms of the temple and gives um, summaries of what happens in those rooms. This too is another dishonest shading of what we actually taught and believed. And it's done because they know they're contradicting themselves in terms of prior things having been taught about no end to the adjustments. They know they're contradicting themselves in terms of removing covenants that we used to say were eternal and unchangeable and unalterable. And they don't want you and me, RFM, having discussions like the one you and I are having right here, right now, for people to understand that something drastic has happened and there is a serious contradiction between Mormon theology and Mormon practice. Can I make one point on this here, Bill? The First Presidency says the temple's ordinances are sacred and are not discussed outside a holy temple. 
Is baptism for the dead an ordinance of the temple? Yes, it is. Is it discussed outside the temple? Yes, it is. Of course it is. This is not really a true statement in the sense of actually describing what it's intending to describe. What it's talking about is the endowment ceremony. That's all it's talking about is the endowment ceremony. And the reason all of a sudden they have this message at the beginning of the endowment is because of the changes that they have made. And they don't want members talking about it amongst themselves. They certainly don't want them talking about it to the outside world, which is why all these leaks have happened and why we already know without having gone to the temple, basically what the changes are. But here's another thing that's important to note. The statement is, the temple's ordinances are sacred and are not discussed outside a holy temple. Okay, I get that. But here's the thing that most people don't know, and even members don't really understand it until you say it. The ordinances of the temple are not discussed inside the temple either. There is no place for anything that happens in the temple, specifically the endowment, because that's usually where the most confusion comes in, the most questions arise. Uh, There is no place for any discussion inside the temple regarding the endowment. It is hermetically sealed. There is no discussion allowed anywhere about the endowment. It is just a matter of personal experience, personal interpretation, and you are not supposed to learn from anybody else and their insights or their experience or what they think about things. So this is how the temple is now set up. The ordinances, specifically the endowment, the endowment is not discussed outside the temple. It's not discussed inside the temple. Everything that happens is very controlled. You know this, Bill. I know this from experience. Everybody who's been to the temple knows this. Everything is very tightly controlled. Everything's very quiet. Everything's very reverent. You get to the room for the endowment. You go through the endowment. After you graduate from the endowment, you go into the celestial room where you're really not supposed to to talk. Bill, have you noticed that? If people start talking, then they have temple patrons who come over and sort of hush you because you're supposed to maintain the air of reverence, which means not saying anything in the celestial room. Then you're in there for a while, you leave, and then you go to the locker room basically to change. So if there's any discussion about the endowment that's going to happen anywhere in the temple, it's going to be in the locker room. And that doesn't usually happen either. Yeah, I suppose if your uncle is a temple president... You could go into the temple and ask to talk to your uncle in his office or in the celestial room. And if he grants permission, perhaps you as a privileged Latter-day Saint could have that conversation. But you and I know that the average member never in their 50 years of being in the church ever has the opportunity to do a Q&A inside the temple where they can ask these kinds of delicate, delicate questions. Now, to take it one step further... You said, hey, we really can't talk about the endowment. We could talk about baptism for the dead. We can talk about sealings. Do we ever talk about sealing ordinances anywhere? Does it, do you ever heard a manual talk about the decor or showing the mirrors on both sides or talking about how husband and wife will um, be across from each other on the altar? Like all of that exists. Yes, an eternal marriage, that's one of the big selling points of the LDS church, and that is an ordinance of the temple. Right, so we do talk about them. But it's more than just saying we can't talk about the endowment. I think we can talk about the endowment too. What we can't talk about is two things. Anything that's embarrassing to the church, those things we can't talk about, and the things that show that LDS leaders have contradicted themselves, those things we can't talk about. And I will add the things we do promise, which are the names, the signs, and the tokens. You can talk about everything else, 
And now you have to ask yourself, why can I talk about the things that contradict? And why can't I talk about the things that are embarrassing? And the reason is that these leaders want to be seen as having communication with Jesus when the evidence points to anything but. Right. And I also think that part of the reason for this proscription on talking about the endowment among members of the church, members of the church can't talk with other members of the church about the endowment is because they don't want it to be talked about that the endowment has just been changed and how it has been changed and what those changes mean and why those changes took place. This is something where they want to quash any discussion among temple-going members of the church, among themselves, about why it is that these changes have occurred. And eventually, it's been 29 years since 1990, Bill. There are so many people who are temple-going Mormons on the face of the earth today, like you, or did you go before 1990 or after 1990? 1997. Okay, so you would have no reason to know that they got rid of the penalties, that they got rid of the sectarian minister, that they got rid of the five points of fellowship. The vast majority of temple-going Mormons after 1990, first time going to the temple, have no clue as to that, and they would have no reason to know about it, and the church would not want them to know about it. Because while all these changes are being made in 1990 and now 29 years later in 2019, while all those things are happening, the church continues to put forth the public image and the public impression that the ordinances do not change. And in a few years, these changes will be forgotten that they were changes as well. So the church continues to give this outward face of we don't change. This is the restoration of things that were had in the past. And we are the protectors and the preservers of these things. Behind the scenes, changes are occurring and changes are going in one direction. And even though the changes are slow, I think they're going in the right direction. Yeah, it's the direction that the world is calling Mormonism to move in. The lost and fallen world, uh, the church seems to agree that it's the world who seems to be on the right side of things. Now, there's a second idea. One is that they, they don't want the discussion. The other thing that they want is that for somebody today, if somebody today were to go through an endowment session for the very first time, their only experience, as, as you pointed out, their only experience is going to be this new way of doing things. And so what the church wants to accomplish is to have all the old people who went through the old way, everybody from, you know, 22 years old and up or 19 or even 18 for those going on missions, to be 18 years old and up, all of you guys, once you're dead, all we have are all these younger people who haven't been able to have this conversation. And all they know is that we've never done a, any kind of patriarchy in our temple ordinances. They're going to only experience the new way of doing things. It's the only story they know. And they'll have nothing to contrast or compare it to. And so the church in 50 years, 100 years, will have an entire block of membership who has never experienced this level of patriarchy in the temple. And they'll have nothing to contrast it to. And they'll think it was always done this way. 85, 90% of the members will think this was always the way it was done. Right. And I think that once again, unfortunately, this shows how the church is so far behind the times, not just with the patriarchy and the changes, but with their idea, 
which apparently they have, their playbook. Remember back in November of 2015 when they thought they could sneak in that new policy about uh, people in gay marriages and their kids into the leadership manuals and nobody would know about it? I seem to remember that one. Yeah, and it got leaked and blew up all over their face, and it was in all the headlines of all the major newspapers in the world. Yeah, they think they can do that and get away with it, but even in spite of that experience, they think they can put these changes into the temple endowment, and everything is going to be kosher because the only people going to the temple are the ones who take the covenants not to talk about what's in the temple, and therefore, of course, they can do this secretly, and people in the world won't know. Well, here it is, January 9th, as we're recording this and finishing up this podcast, and it's already been a week. I mean, it was like the day after, maybe two days after, January 1st, when it's out there. And it doesn't make any difference that these are faithful members of the church. It's not new name Noah going in there. Faithful members of the church going in, finding out and talking about it, and it hits the airwaves and everybody knows about it, which is one of the reasons I also think that they add this last sentence. Its ordinances are sacred and are not discussed outside a holy temple. You people who went to the temple and went and blabbed. This is you. I'm talking to you. Yeah, and I want to take it just one little step further, and then I think I'm finished ranting on this whole thing. It's the idea of if you and I were in the leadership and we were involved in these conversations, I would have taken a completely different strategy. And I think it would have been a much wiser one. And it would have been twofold. One, I would have never said anything about uh, we've always taught that things would, uh, would, there'd be no end to adjustments. That's just a lie. Like there's no, there's no sense in lying. Uh, the other thing too is when you tell somebody not to talk about something, what do they do? Uh, they usually talk about it. Yeah. So don't do that. You're only asking members to actually talk about it when you tell them not to. It becomes this gossipy thing, and human beings are always going to do that. So that's what I wouldn't do. Now, what I would have done is I would have played this more in terms of saying, like, look, these things are not to be altered or changed simply to suit people or cultures. So the first presidency, we, the first presidency, we, the Quorum of the Twelve, we took what members said and what they were suggesting seriously, and we went to the Lord. And we are always hesitant to make any kind of change simply because people want change. But this was a change that Heavenly Father uh, was behind. And I would have framed it that way. And what it would have allowed them to do was it would have allowed them to say, look, we don't just make changes for the sake of making changes, which is what they did. But we make changes, we take these changes so seriously, it takes us years and years of having conversations with Heavenly Father, with working out which changes, working out the actual details of those changes, and making sure that Heavenly Father is in approval every step of the way. And if they would have conveyed it in that way, I don't think you and I would be even doing a podcast this morning. No, and I think the reason they did not do it that way is obvious, at least to me. And that's because if they do it that way, they're giving power to the proletariat. And they're saying that the membership of the church has the ability to change what the church does and to change what the leaders do. That is actually the truth of the matter. But the leaders are invested in maintaining their power which comes from teaching and insisting that they do not do what the members tell them to do. They do what God tells them to do through revelation. 
Sure, but ask Sam Young if that's true. Ask uh, Maxine Hanks if that's true. Ask uh, Dr. Lowry Nelson if that's true. Ask uh, Senator Udall if that's true. Ask uh, uh, New Name Noah if that's true. Um, I, I think essentially every positive change the church has made has never been from the top down, but it's been from voices from the bottom up and the outside in, um, essentially demanding or uh, suggesting that we're not healthy and we need to be better. And then again, decades later, the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve seemed to uh, cave in to the inspired voices that are not in that Thursday temple room. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. That's the reality of the situation. What I was trying to convey is that the pretense that continues to try and be conveyed by the leadership is that they are not being influenced by the members of the church when actually they are. And they continue to teach that they are the sole receptors of revelation from God, that that is what is really the moving force and hence the rewriting of history that they felt necessary to say that prophets have always taught that there would be endless variations being made in the ordinances of the temple. Yeah, except I think that membership now more than ever are seeing a double message and people are losing their faith and walking away. Yes, and once again, it is largely owing to the internet and the rapid availability and dissemination of information, and people are hooked up to it. They're finding out what's really going on, and I think that many, many of them are seeing their church with new eyes. Yeah, and, and they give the critics fodder. They give anybody who's offering critical thought fodder to say, like, look, shine the light on the church. The church is not being honest once again, and every time the church tries to give this double message, hey, we talk to Jesus, we're not going to be led by the members from the lay membership, we're the ones who come up with these grand ideas, only to then do it in a way that the evidence is apparent that the noise is coming from the outside in and from the bottom up. This double message, I just don't think young people with smartphones in their hand fall for this. Maybe they do. I think every time they do this, they actually expose themselves to be the very thing they don't want people to see that they are. And hence, I think they're creating their own problem. You mean people who misrepresent the past and insist on secrecy by their members in order to support their claims of power? Yeah, when all the evidence points to the fact <laughs> that they're, that's the exact opposite of what really goes on behind the scenes. I think that we have really done a good job in discussing these changes to the endowment. They are historical changes to the endowment. I appreciate your taking the time to talk about this with me, Bill. And I'll give you a word and then I'll sign off. Yeah, all I've got to say is people like look at these things as they happen. Try your best to take the view of an outsider outside your tribe. Try to look at the information. Try to try to surmise like what is what is the most rational, logical way to see these things as they're happening? And and if you're willing to do that, I think it becomes quite apparent what's actually going on here. And again, I applaud the changes. I just wish these guys could have said something to the truth of why the changes took place, which is, hey, we've done things that have made our members deeply uncomfortable. Our members have reached out to us in various ways and have suggested that we remove some of these things that are hurtful and harmful and are causing our members to leave the church. And we want to make things better. 
And so that's why these changes have occurred. When you see it in that light, again, the changes were great. It's the lack of vulnerability and transparency that these top 15, the image they want to convey with the reality of who they really are. And that contradiction, I think, constantly points to something deeply unhealthy in Mormonism. Um, And I hope that going forward, we can be more transparent and more honest uh, and more authentic about why we do the things the way we do them. Thank you for those concluding comments, Bill. And thanks for being with me on this episode of Radio Free Mormon. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon. And Bill Real Signing off the air. Change it, 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 change it,